Thank you, Kellen. We're going to begin with a question this morning. Okay, you have some paper and pens in front of you in the pews. I'd like you to write this down using that or your phone, or uh, you can use the Bible app. So what are the first two or three words that come to your mind when I ask this question? The question is, what is God like? Just be honest, write down the first two or three things that come to mind. What is God like? A few years ago, while you're writing that down, ECC hosted Ben Sternke as our men's retreat speaker in back-to-back years, actually. Ben's a pastor, he's a consultant, a coach, he's the co-founder of Gravity Leadership. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the first year that Ben was with us at the men's retreat that he kept repeating a quote. And he repeated it so much that weekend, it, be, it just really stuck with me. The quote wasn't his, it didn't originate with him, but rather with Brian Zahn. And it goes as follows. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time God has not been like Jesus. We haven't always known what God is like, but now we do. It's on the screen. Why don't you say that with me? God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. All right. The idea here is that God is perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to preface what I'm about to say, so listen to this carefully. We here at ECC, we value all scripture. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness. Our, our, Our first covenant affirmation is the centrality of the word of God, and we believe the Bible is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. However, where in the Bible do we learn the most about God? Do we learn the most about who God is from the, from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament? Do we learn the most about God from the Psalms or from the writings of the Old Testament prophets? I think the writer of Hebrews begins to answer this question for us in, in the first chapter. The writer states, In the past, God spoke to us, spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and at many times in various ways, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So, back to the words that you wrote down, or that came to mind. Are these words consistent with what you know of the person of Jesus? I'm going to guess they probably are. So the quote that I shared, and, and the, the truth behind this quote came to mind as, I, as we read these first two chapters in Colossians. Now, two, two weeks ago, we looked at it, in my opinion, what is one of the most beautiful passage of script, passages of Scripture regarding the supremacy of Christ. And many people call that the Messiah poem. It's found in Colossians 1, 16 through 23. And it tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God the co-creator of all things in heaven and on earth. So he's the creator of subatomic things that we can't see with our, with our own eyes. He's the creator of things so far away in the universe we've never seen them because we haven't found them yet. This passage states that Jesus is before all things and he, in him he holds all things together. And our passage today touches on this as well in verse 9 where it states that in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. 
So back to that question, how do we know what God is like? We look at the person of Jesus. That's why in our preaching for the past several years, at least once a year, usually at the beginning of the year, we spend time in the Gospels um, looking at the life of Jesus. Because the life of Jesus lived out in the Gospels reveals who God is. Because God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time God has not been like Jesus. We haven't always known what God is like, but now we do. Okay, on to Colossians. I love this letter. Uh, These first two chapters speak of the supremacy, the sufficiency, and the centrality of Christ who is the center of all things. And I hope hope you read my e-letter article introducing Colossians. There's so much here, and there's a lot in today's passage for us as well. So let's briefly revisit the context for this letter. Paul, Paul is the author. He's writing to a church that he's never visited to people he's never met. A man named Epaphras started the church. Epaphras has since visited Paul in prison, updating him on the church, which leads Paul and Timothy to write to the church. Now, this letter is ultimately delivered by a man named Tychicus, and spoiler alert, a former escaped slave named Onesimus. One of the reasons for the letter is that Paul wants to address some of the cultural pressures that this church was experiencing, including some of the influences from the polytheistic Greek culture, uh, as well as the pressures from the Jewish community, I think. So, so after his initial greetings, Paul is now moving on to address these issues, and he's reminding the Colossians of who they are in Christ. So I, I've titled this message, The Indicative and the Imperative, and I, I'm sorry for the big words, but I think, I really think they are the best words, and I think we're going to see why. One of the definitions of, of indicative is a mood of verbs expressing a statement of a fact. And the word imperative just means crucial or of vital importance. Much of this passage is Paul reminding the Colossians of the facts of of who they are and of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And because of that, it's imperative that they do certain things. Our good news this morning is that because of Christ's victories, we can live our lives in him. Because of Christ's victory, we can live our lives in him. And you might think, well, Kurt, that's pretty obvious. Yes, yes. But the gift, I think, of today's passage is it's a simple reminder to us of what is true. The person of Jesus Christ and, and his atoning work are the indicative facts that are true. And because of that, it is, it's imperative that we live in him. Okay. Let's dive into the passage. Paul begins in verse 6. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So the indicative statement and the imperative charge, I think, are obvious right from the beginning of these two verses. The indicative statement, just as you received Jesus. It's a focus on the initial experience of this church receiving Christ by faith. They have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the fact. The imperative clause is continue to live your lives in him. Other versions of the Bible might might read walk in him. 
Now, this whole passage today is full of metaphors and images. I count at least 13 different metaphors or images in these 10 verses. We're going to look at some of these briefly this morning. Now, Paul, Paul is famous for mixing metaphors, okay? He does it right off the bat here in verse 6. The imperative of living our lives in him is described as being rooted and then built up. So, so we have this horticultural image of deep roots, you know, perhaps a tree. And then we have this image of construction, building, and then strengthening. Well, commentator Andrew Lincoln puts it this way. This, this pattern that involves an indicative statement followed by an imperative is sometimes referred to by the slogan, become what you are, become what you are. And he adds, the indicative of a new life in Christ is more than just simply a possibility. It's real. But at the same time, the fact that an imperative is, is still needed makes it clear that this situation, this new situation is in progress and that the relationship between who one is in Christ and, and how one lives is not necessarily an automatic one. So, so you see there's seemingly a tension between who one is and how one lives. What is done, our identity, and the effort that's needed to appropriate it. Okay, so the roots are established. I mean, Christ has done that work. We are to build upon them, to be strengthened in faith, as Paul says, and as Paul says, being overflowing with thankfulness for this teaching. This is an imperative as well. And Paul is saying here that one of the marks of those who have received Christ and who are seeking to live in him is that they are grateful people, overflowing with gratitude. So Paul then moves on to the first warning in this entire letter. It takes place here in verse 8. It's an imperative statement, verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. So Paul is warning here against human tradition and elemental spiritual forces. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you read, you may have a different initial picture of what Paul is talking about here. Um, it may be spirits. Um, it may be principles or elements. It might be the spiritual uh, powers in the heavenly realm. Uh, it might be the fundamentals of this false teaching that they're dealing with. It, it might refer to the elements of the cosmos at that time, with earth, air, fire, and water, sea, in the ancient world, the lines between elements or forces in the universe and the spirit world were, were somewhat blurred. A lot of things that we consider natural today were believed to be controlled by spiritual forces or beings. And this may be what Paul is, the very things Paul is referring to back in chapter 1, verse 16, when he describes creation as including things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones, powers, or rulers, or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. So I think some of what Paul is warning this church about will become a little bit more evident to us next week when we unpack the rest of chapter 2. Paul expands on some of these rules and human teaching, and I'm going to leave some of that for Beth Ernest to unpack next week. But we can, you know, for our purposes, we can insert any number of philosophies to, that in our context here to try to take us captive today, whether that's materialism, individualism, consumerism, relativism. So Paul's point here is that whatever these philosophies are, they're woefully insufficient compared to the supreme, the all-sufficiency of Christ in whom 
the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. So now we switch back to an indicative statement. As I indicated earlier, Paul says in verse 9, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. What is God like? God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time God has not been like Jesus. We haven't always known what God is like, but now we do. All the fullness of the deity, the triune God, co-eternal, lives in bodily form in the person of Jesus. The early church would continue to deal with this and struggle with this even through the 4th century where ultimately a man named a man of some influence named Arius claimed that that Jesus was not eternal and he was less god than god the father and the church leaders who gathered at the council of Nicaea determined that his teaching was was indeed heresy and the Nicene Creed was born out of that council which states that Jesus Christ is the only son of god eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And and that last sentence literally means of the same substance. So in regards to the fullness of Christ, Paul then shares another indicative statement with that church in Colossae in verse 10, stating that in Christ you have been brought to fullness. So in referring to the Colossian readers and and to us, I would contend, again, Lincoln puts it this way. Principalities and powers have already been shown that they have been created and reconciled through Christ back in chapter 1. And Christ has been designated as a head over the church. Now Christ's headship is is said to be over these powers. So believers need not see themselves as subject to these powers. Instead, the cosmic powers are subject to Christ through whom the believers have been filled. So N.T. Wright puts it this way. I like this. He says, if you possess Jesus, you are already fulfilled in him. And no rule or authority can go, as it were, over his head to impose itself on you. Because he is the head of them all. Okay, Paul gives us two more indicative images here in verse 11 and 12. Circumcision and baptism. He says in verse 11, in him... You were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. So I think this might give us a little bit of an indication where some of this societal pressure was coming for the Colossian church, where that might be originating. We don't know for sure that they're facing some of the same pressures from the Jewish community um, as other places like Galatia, but this verse does seem to allude to it. Paul talks about our circumcision, and it says that our circumcision took place in Christ's circumcision, which is really a metaphor for Christ's violent death. So what Paul's saying here is, look, this is not about some rule that you have to, have to keep in order to more fully enter into the covenant God made with Abraham. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to do anything these false teachers may tell you because All that God has for you is found in Christ. He's done the work for you. By faith, you entered into the circumcision of Jesus, which, again, another metaphor for his death on the cross. Okay, now then Paul switches to to another metaphor in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, so is Paul mixing his metaphors again? Perhaps, 
But, but this is a beautiful illustration. And again, I like, I like the way N.T. Wright puts it. You don't need to get circumcised. Why not? Because you already have been. And the only sense that really matters. It's what happened when you were buried with the king in baptism and raised with him through God's power. Okay, then Paul ties both of these images together in verse 13. He says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. Paul is saying, this isn't about a ritual with a part, just a part of your body. This is about putting off an entire way of life, an entire sphere of existence. This means dying to the old world and coming alive to God in a new world. And then Paul adds at the end, he forgave us all our sins. In other words, Paul Paul say he didn't just do this for, for you, Colossians. He did it for all of us. He forgave us all our sins. So how did he do it? Verse 14 and 15, Paul gives us more metaphors, more images, this time of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Now he starts... He starts with an image of a debt that we cannot pay. He says, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Kristen, this is what Kristen shared with us in the children's message. And there are two Greek words here that are translated as legal indebtedness. And the first basically describes sort of a written document, I would say like a promissory note, to pay. The problem is we have no ability to pay it. Only Christ can pay it. And the second word is a Greek word that's usually here used to describe the decrees of the Jewish law that sometimes carries with it a sense of punishment if they're not lived up to. So when we put these two together, we get a picture of a debt owed to God for our disobedience to God's laws in the form, in the form of an IOU that's signed by us. It documents this, this charge of our legal indebtedness to God. So I call this a cosmic IOU, all right? So this cosmic IOU, it stood against us. It condemned us. It stood in the way. It blocked us from being able to enter into God's covenant people. Paul said it stood against us, but Jesus canceled it. He just canceled it. I'm reminded of Christ's words on the cross where he said, it is finished, which is tetelestai, which means paid in full. Paul then moves to his final image in verse 15. And and in my opinion, I think he saved the best for last. This, This one is my favorite image. Paul says in verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Okay, well, we might think, okay, what's that all about? We might think that, but I tell you what, this image would have required no explanation for the first century reader or hearer. Everyone who lived in the first century knew how Rome conquered other empires, and they knew what sometimes followed. It was called a Roman triumph. Basically, it was a big parade, a party. If you lived in Rome every few years, you could count on one of these happening. It was a holiday. So this parade consisted of these mobile displays. Uh, probably the best analogy today would be like floats in a parade. All right. Um, they, they told uh, stories of the conquest, and they educated the Roman citizens on the land that was conquered. So the parade also included some of the exotic animals that were brought back from the conquered land. 
Um, also, it included the prisoners, the soldiers that were captured and brought back into Rome uh, to be, in humility, to be, to be paraded and triumphed over. Okay? This was also followed by the Roman, uh, Roman soldiers and the triumphator. The triumphator, this was the Roman general that led the campaign. He'd be wearing purple and he'd have a wreath on his head. So the parade went through the streets of, the Rome, uh, of Rome. It went to, through the Circus Maximus, which was uh, a large racing track that held 150,000 people. It ended at the Temple of Jupiter, where the triumphator would be honored. And the prisoners, well, and their leader, they would be ceremonially executed. They were made to be a public spectacle. Today we'd call this a war crime. And even in the first century, other kingdoms didn't look too favorably upon it. So when the Romans, when they crucified Jesus under a sign that said he was the king of the Jews, this is more or less what they were doing. Now, they didn't think he was worth taking back to, to Rome. He didn't have an army to parade, nor did he have any spoils. But anybody who looked upon that cross that day would think that the rulers and the authorities just stripped him naked and celebrated a public triumph over him. After all, this is, this is what Rome did. But N.T. Wright says, now rub your eyes and read verse 15 again. To the contrary, it's Jesus who has marched back into the city and he's defeated these principalities and powers in tow, chained together, beaten and bruised and humiliated, stripped of all power over us. They have been vanquished. The purpose of a Roman triumph was to make a point to the Roman citizens. You see these captured soldiers? They're no longer a threat to you. We're, we're about to humiliate them in the best way we know how. Eugene Peterson in the, the, the message translates verse, verse 15 as follows. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and he marched them naked through the streets. Gotta love Eugene Peterson. Paul is saying to the readers, and he's saying to us, you see these powers and principalities, these spiritual tyrants, the devil and his demons? They're no threat to you. I'm parading them before you to show you you need not fear them. So as I was thinking about how we should apply this passage to our lives today, it, it seems, to borrow a phrase from... Um, a popular book on leadership culture that in this passage, Paul begins with the end in mind. He begins with the end in mind. I think, I think our primary charge comes right at the beginning in verse 6 and 7. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. I think our application lies in the indicative and the imperative components of these two verses. So do these words in these two verses describe your relationship with Christ? Have you received him? Have you begun your faith journey in discipleship? And if so, is Jesus making an impact in your life, in your relationships, in your place in the world? Are you being built up in him? Are there any orange, orange cones or hard hats in your life from construction happening? Are you being strengthened? In other words, is your faith and your relationship in Christ stronger than it was previously? Do you have evidence and proof of that? 
mainly to yourself, that you can prove to yourself? Were you taught? Or were you being taught? Are you overflowing with thankfulness? All these questions speak to our touchstone of transformation. You know, perhaps you're here this morning and you say, yeah, I've received Christ, but I certainly haven't continued to live my life in him. I can't really say I built much on that foundation. Yeah, I was taught some things and I've learned some things, but my faith really hasn't been strengthened. If that describes you, it's my prayer that, 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 that you seek to begin this construction, this building process. In his first book, The Good and Beautiful God, James Bryant Smith introduces what he calls the triangle of transformation. And we've shown this here before, but we're going to look at it again this morning. Smith states that changing involves four basic elements. The first is changing the stories in our mind through looking at Jesus' narrative in his life events. Because after all, I've heard somewhere that God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time God is not like Jesus. We haven't always known what God is like, but we do now. So we must become students of the life of Jesus. The second corner of the triangle is engaging in new practices, which is soul training. We have a page on our website committed to this. If you haven't gone there, check out ecclife.net slash soul training. While you're at it, if you haven't listened to Kate Cogswell's sermon from June 6th on soul training on this topic, you need to do it. You need to do it. This is an important part of our transformation process. The third angle is in community, which means in reflection and dialogue with those who are on the same path. So in other words, come to church, yes, but also be in fellowship with your brothers and sisters at church. This is part of transformation. This will change you. And number four, I'd say last but most, the Holy Spirit works in and through all of these, transforming us. Well, perhaps you're here this morning, or you're with us online worshiping, and you can't get past that first verse, that first phrase in its sentence, just as you have received Christ as Lord. Perhaps you've not come to the place yet where you believe that what Christ has done for you is enough. The heart of God is revealed in the person of Jesus, who is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus also said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whosoever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus, the co-creator of the universe, loves you enough and he desires a relationship with you enough that he took on flesh. He became human. He died for your sins. He rose victorious, defeating, disarming the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, as it says in verse 15, by triumphing over them through the cross and his resurrection. All that's needed for a relationship with Jesus is to declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you do that, Paul says, you will be saved. If you're not sure of that and you would like to, you could pray with me this morning. I would love to do that. Now, hear me. Prayer is just talking to God. There's nothing magical or mystical in the words of prayer. It's just really an expression of our faith. 
And if you'd like to do that this morning with me right now, if you're here or you're online with this, mor- this, to this morning and, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and believe that he died for you and rose again and you want to have that relationship with him, you can just silently pray with me. Let's go to God now in prayer. That's you, just pray this with me. God, I confess my need for a savior. And Jesus, I believe that you are God who took on flesh to die for me and that you rose again paying the price for my sin to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. I confess you as Lord Jesus. God, I thank you that it's by grace that it was saved through faith. Nothing I can do myself, Lord. I thank you for new life in Christ and for salvation. You are worthy to be praised. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning for the first time, I would like you to let us know. Either Pastor Jordan or I will be available if you're here in the sanctuary. If you're worshiping with us online, our emails can be found on our website, ecclife.net. Amen. It is now our sacred privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. All who humbly put their trust in Christ and desire his help that they might lead a new life, a holy life. All that are truly penitent for their sins and would be delivered from them. All who would walk in love with their neighbors and intend to live a new life following the commandments of God and walking henceforth in his holy ways are, are invited to draw near with faith and take this holy sacrament. Friends, this is a joyful feast of the people of God. Many will come from east and the west, from the north and south and sit at the table in the kingdom of God. This is the Lord's table. Our Savior invites those who trust him to share the feast he has prepared. According to Luke, when the risen Lord was at the table with his disciples, he took the bread and the wine and we had given thanks and blessed it and broke it. He gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Will you join with me now as we pray together the prayer of confession? Most, Most merciful, merciful God, we, we confess that we, we have sinned, sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. We may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Jesus died for our sins, not to satisfy an angry God, but to reach out with unending love to stubborn and selfish people. We are those people. Let these words sink into you and be comforted. Your sins are forgiven. Is the Father with us? Yes. Is Christ among us? Yes. Is the Spirit here? Yes. This is our God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are His people. We are redeemed. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give Him thanks and praise. 
us pray. Holy, loving Father, it is good to give you thanks and praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. We give you thanks for bringing us to this place. We give you thanks for bringing us together. We give you thanks that through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have opened wide the gates of your kingdom to each one of us. We give you thanks for the gift of the Holy Spirit, who has adopted us into your family. And we praise you for the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was offered for us and has taken away the sin of the world. By his death, he has destroyed death. And by his rising to life, he has restored us to eternal life. Amen. On the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus took bread and he gave thanks. And he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup in the same way. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And he said, drink of this, all of you. For this, in this blood is the new covenant and the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Come now, Holy Spirit. As you are present in creation, be present now and transform these gifts of this bread and this cup into the sustaining body and blood of Christ. As you were sent by Jesus to be with us on this journey of faith, be present now and transform us who share this meal into one body in Christ. And now as our Savior Jesus taught us to pray, we are bold to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy earth done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive those, we forgive those who sin against us, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts with thanksgiving. Take and eat. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Drink of it, all of you. The body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, may it strengthen you and keep you in his grace. Would you pray with me? Eternal God, we give you thanks for this holy mystery in which you have given yourself to us. God, grant that we may go into the world in the strength of your spirit and give ourselves to others for the name, in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen.